And we're back. Welcome to Abstractable. I'm Lockie and this is Ryan. And this is a podcast for people like us who are curious about the world around them. And we want to learn with you as we go. In this episode, we talk about the book Animal Farm by George Orwell. And what do we talk about? We talk about George and his colourful life and upbringing. Uh, We discuss Manor Farm, which is the the farm that the book's based around and the goings on with all the different animals on the farm. Some pesky, some are not. The true meaning of the book and what its relevance is to today. And um, obviously George passed away a number of years ago, so he isn't on the social medias, um, but you can read his books to find out more about him. So we're hitting fiction this week. We are. What are we listening to? Or what, uh, are, what is everyone else listening to? <laughs> the Animal Farm. Well, it's not The Animal Farm, is it? It's an animal. Good start. <laughs> <laughs> animal that Farm. Be, that might be a restart. <laughs> animal Farm. Cut. Oh, that's that's got to stay in. That is got to stay in because it's terrible. Um, George, by George Orwell. By the George Orwell. Um yeah, I don't read pretty much any fiction books. So I think we made a rule when we first started doing this yeah. that we were going to read fiction. Mm. And I think I've probably slightly stretched the original rule, um, but we were going to read a fiction book. Every third or something. Every like third, that. but I think I've increased it to one in, one in five books must yeah. be a fictional book. Yeah. Because then, then people can hold us to account if yeah. there's been well, it's out of, there now. If we hit a, hit a zero or a five yeah. and we haven't had a fictional book, what the fuck's going on? Yeah, that's Ryan? Right. I reckon that um, it's good for me too because I know there's value in fiction. I'm just not drawn to it initially, but I need to change that, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I want to, so... The, the more fiction that I have been reading, the more I've been getting into the fiction. But it's, I think there's a particular subtle. type. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it, the messages are a bit more subtle or less direct, aren't they? We have a, um, we have a, a book club at work and funnily enough, the book that my microphone is resting on at the moment <laughs> is the book that's the current one that's been... Uh, they don't to be pick discussed. easy ones. No, this I one mean, here, this one here, this is the laws of human nature. Robert Greene, sensational book, apparently. Um, is that newish or is it old? New, right? It's his latest and greatest. I think it came out the tail end of last year. It's got a little bit of sapiens about it, maybe. Yeah, yeah I think it does. I'd be yeah. interested to see what you think. I read Mastery by Robert Greene. Yeah, that was um, good. Um. Not my favourite book, but worth a shot. Was it – why wasn't it – what what let, let it down? I guess after reading something like Principles. <laughs> Everything else is on a different well, playing field or? he's a – I just trust um, people that do it, you know, rather than academics. Yeah. Taleb. Yeah. You know, I, I just think – <laughs> like it's a brilliant book and obviously incredibly well researched and all that sort of stuff and has a lot of value but I kind of found that yeah I wanted to you know I'd rather have read from people who have practice and look he's a very successful author so I guess you could say that that's practice but he researches history and so he's talking about he's talking about the mastery like how to master something yeah take, he's like it. how to be a master at something yeah 
and I guess he, his mastery is mastering research and writing and articulating that through writing. Yeah, so I guess it? maybe I, I probably am. When you say it like that, I probably and that I liked it, but I didn't. It, it wasn't it didn't blow didn't you away. Blow me away. It wasn't yeah. like oh my god. But I really enjoyed the historical anecdotes. You made um, me miss some had. of that tangibility. The other thing I'm wary of now is that having a so I read, um, I think it was called um, uh, Start With Why or Starting With Why by Simon Sinek. Simon Sinek. Yeah, and I really liked his theory and message and stuff, but he, he'd say something and be like, and then he'd give an example of like the Wright brothers or something. And that's similar to how these books work. But the core, I, after reading The Black Swan, I'm like, well, this is like just a really neat narrative you've tried to tie in to prove your point, but it's probably not true. And I felt a little bit wary that perhaps it was a little bit the same in Robert Greene's books is that, but where he's different is he strings together multiple examples of different people who have done, say, this type of thing to get to mastery. And it's that connection between, okay, this guy who did it did this so did this other person, so did this other person, so did this other person. Then it's actually more likely to be um, a causal factor. Yeah. Um, so I bet, yeah, I'm now quite wary of simple explanations of things, you know. Oversimplifying. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> Particularly um, after, again. They it. had a purpose, so they invented the plane, you know. did Okay. That's what they set out to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it feels a little bit simple, but <laughs> <laughs> would you have picked that before they invented the plane? Would you have met them and gone, oh, I think these guys will do it over these other guys? Probably not. Hmm. And, and and was that also, because there's a classic case of this: the nature of inventions, is it quite often it's the time of the invention. So it's the time that that invention oh, was to be made. That is so interesting. That That's one of the things that's full mind blowing. Yeah. That that yeah, basically what you're saying there for context is that there's a phenomenon where in completely independently, which is harder now in this world, but you know, in the early nineteen hundreds or whatever or before, people would in completely different areas basically discover or invent the same thing at the, basically the same time. And it must be just these inputs are about and just a certain number of people just connect them in independence. It's like the overall progress, you know what I mean? Mm. Like the overall progress of technology and human nature or something. And so enough information around the similar topics is occurring at the same time with people in the same field and mm. and they just sort of are aligning in the way they're going. I think it was even, even happened with like the likes of Newton. Yeah, and Einstein and... Yeah. I'm not sure of the extent of There's a big list on Wikipedia if you look it up. Um, uh, Darwin. You know, like... Yeah. That's... You don't hear about that. Um, that was slightly different. I think they... The per other person who ended up collaborating with Darwin didn't um, quite tie everything together like he did perhaps, but the general premises... He also missed evolution. the other trip on the boat. <laughs> the, the beagle. Trip. Yeah, the beagle. Um, so, yeah, we've talked a lot about the book so far. The, and, uh, yeah, 
quick note, the footy starts tonight. Cool. Who's, <laughs> who's playing the Pies? Uh, Richmond Carlton, so. Yeah. Um, what do I think the Pies are playing? Uh, I don't know. Probably, I don't know, because they played in the grand final. But, um, yeah, been a long drought, so I'm looking forward to (laughs) something besides work to talk about. You can tell us a little bit more about Richmond propaganda later on in this episode. Yeah, I'll I'll call back to that. (laughs) So Animal Farm, George Orwell. Mm. What, What was going through the world at the time. Well, I was that, thinking that maybe maybe I can weave it through your bio. Yeah. Because um, it's there's so much happening and he moves around and does so many different things. It's kind of it's probably better captured in the stages of his life. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 but I, I can he, kick us off with um British India, so um essentially he was born there um to a family um, that was what he described as lower upper class. So still doing pretty well, but not like the rich of the rich in the palaces sort of thing. Yeah, what. lower upper middle class. <laughs> yeah. um, but I guess this is at the time of imperialism where Britain had taken over India, the East India Company, and um, much like Australia, ruled over it, but in a very harsh way very harsh way in many ways for certainly the local people. Um, and it, he was born right in the middle of that sort of reign, uh, which went from 1858 to 1947. So um, his birth in 1903 was smack bang in the centre of that hole. So I imagine it was a a thriving... Um, they were established. Established yeah. government, etc. so... It was almost like the, that sort of way, of way of life you'd expect. I don't know enough about the sort of imperial um, British India, but it's almost like halfway through you'd expect everything to be going as was intended mm. across God's the plan. journey. Yeah, It's interesting with the East India Company and some of the Dutch companies um, back in the day that, these sort of non, I guess they were kind of, I guess they were kind of semi-government, but almost semi-private government entities, like took over nations, <laughs> you know, like um, th- there Just existed, one of those. <laughs> yeah, there existed massive corporations that dominated parts of the world and discovered, like Indonesia was ruled by the Dutch for. A long time, I believe. Geez, I'm going to have to fact check that. But um, like Manhattan was and New York was run by the Dutch, a Dutch private company for its establishment, you know. And so it's interesting that we're kind of coming back around to that. <laughs> the super company. Yeah. yeah. Um, and really interesting that tech companies are now the new massive companies rather than, say, your General Electrics and that sort of thing that were prevalent in the 80s and 90s. But So what have we learned from last time? What do we what do we need to take forward with us this time, knowing that this is happening again as another one of those? Too big to fail. Hmm. But I guess they all did disappear, so it might be something cool to look into, hmm. uh, what actually happened to all those uh, different... Entities. 
Yeah. I The I'll, governments took them over, I think. They just went in and said... It. <laughs> which, is, which is the opposite of sort of what's happening now. So that there was government takeovers, but now there's sort of the privatisation of government sectors. Oh, 100%. And, and, and you and I both like, effectively have benefited from that greatly um, in our lines of work. Um, <laughs> that governments don't really want to perform anything themselves anymore and they're getting gutted. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it'll keep going or if it'll swing back a little bit. But um, And what, and what re- you know, what the the game of regulation and needs to play in that and how it needs to manage that, you know, without overstepping or without understepping, mm. you know, and what, what the different forks can lead to if one of those happens. So, which ironically is, is pretty well what this book's about <laughs> and the, the, the uh, extreme overstepping, yeah, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. So obviously, as you said, <coughs> George Orwell, which is only his pen name, um, or an alias, if you will, because uh, his actual name is Eric Arthur Blair. Um, but George Orwell was something that came about later on in his life, which I'll tell you about shortly. So, yeah, as you said, 1903, he was born and he lived to the age of 46 in 1950. Um, he did suffer a lot from various illnesses and and um, had just a myriad of issues across his entire life. <clears throat> so he was born in India, um, East Champaran, state of Bihar, um, which was at the time under crown rule. And many will uh, recognise um, many of his books, Animal Farm, I'm sure many have heard of, 1984 for either the, uh, the esoteric of us or who were forced to study it in high school. <laughs> Flashbacks. Like, like myself. Um, I've never read it, but... Have you? It didn't good, come up in school for that, me. That might be a uh, future fictional read, mate. Cool. Episode 15, episode 20, <laughs> maybe 25. Um, and he was he, he did marry. Um, he was married at 33 uh, to Eli O'Shaughnessy, and then he married again um, <laughs> um, one year prior to his death, which is quite interesting. That's really interesting because he would have been quite sick then from what I've read, but yeah, he was, he was suffering big time. So right. we'll get into that. Um, good inheritance or no. So as Died you said poor. earlier, he was, um, he was in what was known as, or what he referred to as, uh, the lower upper middle class. Mm. So, um, he describes that as being, uh, not having money, or not being passed down the wealth of, so he come from almost, almost not quite royalty, but there was, there was, there was crossovers and different things between great grandfathers and grandfather. I think his grandfather was a pastor, and before that, he was a lord or okay. something of that nature. And um, they didn't receive the financial benefit, but they re- re- received the uh, uh, the sophisticated societal status and. Um, and sort of the the upper mm. the upper level there, just not in terms access of access to education, I assume. Yeah, well, access, yeah. Well, he had an interesting life through his education. Um, as I said, they didn't have the money, but they had the connections, mm. or they were able to find the connections. So, um, he moved to England at the age of one, 
um, and his father stayed in India and he only saw his father at the age of four and at the age of nine, um, which is pretty interesting. Really um, interesting. I'm not sure how the family unit rekindled and how to what extent it rekindled um, sort of after the age of nine, but um, it was certainly a very hands-off relationship with the father for, for the early parts of his life. So First World War, 1914 to 1918, would have been his early teenage years um, and that was a war like no one had ever seen before because um, basically there was a great, a huge increase in technology um, and the weaponry and, and sophistication of machinery and the industrial nature of what could be produced then caused absolute carnage because the military tactics hadn't really evolved yet until towards the back end of that war or at least after the first year or two. So people were still, you know, lining up in the field to charge at one another. Trench warfare was only just being introduced and people would just get mowed down. And the, the absolute, I think from my reading, people were just shocked at, at just how brutal it was never in history had there been such a brutal war. And probably I'm not sure how – I'm not a military expert, so I don't know how the others compare, but certainly it's known as one of the most devastating conflicts and threw everything into disarray for probably 30, 40 years afterwards. I think there was – Just as he was – you know, you can imagine like living now and everything's going along nicely – you know, you get your odd uh, issue here and there between countries and all of a sudden, bang, everyone's uh, out in bloody Germany and France or wherever fighting and they're on rations, everything's crazy. You don't know what the whole world would be turned upside down. Yeah. And, and, and you as, <clears throat> you know, uh, as an individual in in any of the, involves states or countries you're part of the war machine mm. so if you're not fighting you are contributing in some way or another wholly and fully just towards the war effort mm. you know, black, black swan event just black swan event Classic Ferdinand just getting popped yeah but it was also World War One. I think there was quite a few ethical boundaries pushed in terms of you know the what we can use, what we can't use in terms of wars mm. and some, you know, post-reflections of what we can and can't use in wars. And what you can and can't, who you can and can't kill probably too and yeah. some pretty pretty bad stuff. But also the <laughs> invention of the tank, wasn't mm. it? Yeah, World War I. machine guns, all that sort of stuff. So a pretty sort of exponential growth in technology progress. Killing machines, that's and it. Killing machines. So... Um, just before that, he um, we were talking about his education, and at the age of five, he was sent to a Roman Catholic Covenant school. So back in England, yeah, this is in England, and the family could not afford the fees for a public school education. So I think public school education are some of the uh, more prestigious. Eton and yeah, Eton and um, Westminster. What? Yeah. Um, the high of the high. Yeah. yeah, those 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 type of schools. Um, and so he needed to earn a scholarship to get in there, um, which he eventually did. And 
it, he got a he got a place at um, um, Cyprian's school in East Sussex, um, which was also off the back of a recommendation um, of an uncle who played golf with the headmaster. Very good. So he's connected. Nice. Well connected. Learn to play golf. And well, it's cycling now, isn't it? You got to. Well, there's a lot of cyclists, but I think well, I thought that was the new golf. It does feel like it, because <laughs> you see people, you see a lot of people cycling these days. Yeah. And a lot of money spent on oh the gear oh my god Th- those bikes are more expensive than my car I know <laughs> carbon fiber <laughs> how much of a difference can it make that you can lift it up with a finger I guess quite a lot but it probably does over if you over just the course a big a big amount of case yeah I guess it's just a, something to spend your money on right so they um not as much chatter yeah you imagine playing golf. Smoking or something, talking, walking up to sealing the hole. deals, sealing deals on yeah. the on the green. Yeah, you know, you can. There's a lot of time to, to talk shop, but when you're riding a bike, you stop at traffic lights and is that that's it? Where you have a swear, chat. swear at the motorists. <laughs> that wouldn't even happen if you're so in Melbourne. If you're riding around, yeah, you're going to have traffic lights. You might have a chance to stop and have a chat. If you were anywhere in the country, like there's cyclists everywhere in say Bendigo, yeah, and surrounds. And they're just on open stretches of country roads mm. and there is nowhere to, you know, yeah. they're not going to stop. <laughs> yeah. They basically go out. So you, I, I imagine it's then the uh, the post-coffee where all the endorphins are flowing around the body. Yeah. Because that is, that's the standard that's procedure. 40 bikes out the front of a coffee shop. Out of the shit coffee shop. Yeah. And then. The coffee shop that no one else goes to. <laughs> and then. For some reason. Everyone's attracts kind of the cyclists. sliding around on their boots or whatever. <laughs> you know, those clip-in <laughs> shoes. Uh, there's no room, to carry the, no room to carry the uh, the heavy shoes, mate. Yeah, got to keep it, got to keep it light. So they're actually able to, um, off the back of the uh, the golf deals, they're able to negotiate half fees as well, as well as this scholarship. So I imagine that, that is was pretty cheap. He must have let the headmaster win. Yeah, must have been a better golf player. Um, <clears throat> and so this. Oh, this was the time when he was at, um, in his early schooling years that he met his childhood friend Jacinta, uh, who he met at the age of 11, um, which would be getting pretty close to the start of World War One. Um, but they both sort of inspired in each other and encouraged each other to write poetry, which is quite interesting because at age 11, I think I was just coming out of scraping dirt with my fingers to try and dig a hole or <laughs> climb a tree or something like that. I think I was doing a few different things at the age of 11. Anyway, so I think that comes from maybe that background. Yeah, um, I think so. But they eventually lost touch at the age of 22 and they they had a few exchanges via, via letters back in the days um, and they ended up connecting <clears throat> again later in life in 1949 only when she realised that George Orwell was... Eric, <laughs> um, from from his childhood. I guess it's good to have an alias, right? Yeah, or bad. But so is your name really lucky? Yeah, you'll um, never know. He stayed at boarding school for five years. Uh, hated it, uh, but he it was a chance for him to proliferate his writing and his style. Um, and he also earned quite a few accolades and awards and things going through. Um, so is that his late, later high school years, or? Yeah. So he st- well, he stayed. He stayed there at that that boarding school for five years. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then he moved on shortly after, um, I think at the age of 14. Um, 
Yeah, so he did. He did. He did move on at the age of fourteen. Um, Boarding schools in England, particularly at those high levels, are quite interesting places. Um, they're generally all boy, boy schools, or this, the ones yeah. I've read about. And um, I read Christopher Hitchens' Hitch Twenty Two a long time ago, and I want to read that. Yeah. Is it good? No, it is good. It's pretty. <laughs> it's too smart for me. A lot of it I didn't understand because he's just such a smart dude. And there's a lot of stuff that he's covered that you need to know the context of and that sort of thing. Um, it's a lot of that sort of culture and history and yeah. stuff creeping in that you just got yeah, no context around. Yeah, straight over my head. Yeah. Um, but I always remembered what he, he was talking about, the boarding schools and how they were pretty rough places, but there was a very kind of um, interesting thing that happened where – they'd all partner up and it was a um, part of the social dynamic of the boarding schools back then according to him was yeah you'd partner up and you'd have a boyfriend basically and you know you you know do sexual things with your partner and it was kind of like uh, whether sometimes a lot of times like someone older or something uh, and it was part of the social machinations of that society um, and then I'm sure some of them were gay but not many of them um, and then you'd go on finish boarding school and off you go. I, I've, I've never heard that. Yeah. That's, that's so profound. I'd be interested it makes to sense that that look into that a on. bit more because um, that's just really interesting. Um, but, yeah, definitely he talked about it quite a bit in – his book in depth. It's almost like a it's a, a chance for the lads to let their head. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Like, is it this sort of similar? Like, similar things happen in prisons, right? Yeah, that's so very true. In a different, probably a different context, but yeah, a little bit more forced. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> um, so he did stay there, and then he eventually. Eton College, as you said. So he, he earned what's called the uh, the um, uh, King's Scholar, which got him into Eton College. And sorry, I did miss one. There was Wellington. I said West, mm. Westminster before. It was Wellington um, in between that. Um, and that was at the age of 14. And through his time there, he was actually even taught by Aldous Huxley. He was taught French by Aldous Huxley, um, who's the famous English... What did, he write? what did he write? Uh, Brave New World's the one I know, but it's he's a oh, that's supposed to be yeah, game changer. That might be a, a fictional future, future. Well, that's supposed road. to be a bit more. Um, I've heard is a bit more closer to where we're heading than probably 1984 is. Yeah, I definitely want to read that book. That can be let's get it on the there list. We go. That's the next fiction one in six, five more episodes. <laughs> Um, and so they're King Scholars, for those that don't know, just they're, they're you know, it's, it's basically a scholarship. Um, okay. Which, you know, they're admitted on based on academic performance and they typically get reduced fees to attend these, you know, prestigious public schools. Um, ironically, he did perform poorly academically. Um, I think he had other interests. He was involved in a magazine and a, uh, or sorry, the a local school magazine and, which sounds like he continued to, you know... Hone his craft. Hone his craft, yeah. Um, and he remained there until the age of 18. 
Um, moving on from that, there was the option to go to university or do other things. Now, his, his family, because of his poor grades, thought that university wasn't as applicable. So they um, either encouraged or via forced hand um, got him into the Imperial Foot Police. Um, so he did get through that and he um, eventually found his way into the Indian police force um, at the age of 19 and then was posted to Burma. As you do. Uh, shortly Off to after. Burma. So he's just going from Eton College to Burma Yeah, um, with a little sort of hiatus in between of learning how to be a policeman <laughs> in the space of 12 months or less. I guess it's another view on a different imperial rule. In Burma and, you know, you know, the British back then really had a view that they were the superior race, I guess, or group of people and they would bring society to the natives and, you know, even the people in, even the white people in Australia were treated as second class citizens to the Brits in terms of uh, the relationships in the wars and that sort of thing. You'd send the Aussies in to... Um, the crappy battles and that sort of stuff, and but certainly to the people, the indigenous people of these places got absolutely brutalised. Um, Lost culture, mate. Mm. And so he would have seen a fair bit of that. I would have thought. Oh, it's pretty interesting because, like, he, this if there's one thing that I'll say about George Orwell, he has had just a very diverse range of experiences and and travels and everything throughout his whole life. and Which so, is similar to Taleb. Mm. And it's going to be interesting to weave through similarities that some of these authors have had um, and, you know. Some themes that pop out. Yeah. I suspect that travel will be a strong one, early travel, from just some of the stuff we've already talked about. But perhaps as well some... Um, I think the not having a father can come out too. I reckon. I'll be interested. That's my that's my guess. I'll be interested to see or a present father. I'll be interested to see if that bears true as we go through the different episodes mm, and what impact that might or does actually have on on some of these guys. Um, so some of the things he did whilst he's in Burma, um, <laughs> he was he was. Uh, managing the security of 200,000 people at one point in time in a particular district. Okay. Which is quite... That's a lot. Quite profound. That's quite large. Um, he's 19. Yeah. You know, or, so, sorry, between the ages of 19 and 24-ish. But he's a upper-class gent, so he's born for this, you know. Well, he did grow a moustache <laughs> and the famous moustache when he was there and I don't think that left his side. Okay, uh, or his lip. Yeah, or his lip, if you will. Um, and he did also look after a prison. Um, uh, he caught dengue fever <laughs> at the age of 24, and that, that actually allowed him to um, uh, be, be brought back to on leave, uh, sickness leave, back to England. Um, so um, that also resulted in him, uh, when he came back, leaving. So he resigned from the police force and used that as an opportunity um, and moved to France where mm. he took up or started again honing in on that craft, writing and journalism-focused 
he was he wrote so many different essays and things throughout this period of time. Um, he was just really starting to, to practice to practice and get that 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 steam engine moving. Um, again, sickness, nineteen twenty nine. Um, he was extremely sick. Um, <laughs> so much so that I think he had you know he didn't quite die or nearly die, but he was he was very very in a bad bad state and he went to a hospital a free hospital that was used for medical staff training so um and th- this was inspiration for how the poor die right one of his one of his um one of his pieces um shortly after so this is this is again in france um he was robbed and basically lost everything um and took up dishwashing and this is sort of the one of the buildings into his down and out in Paris and London. Um, so all these various experiences from his life going into building some of the stories and things that he's told, whether whether it be fiction or nonfiction. Um, it, it also, this time in France also really honed his, uh, I don't want to say obsession, but he was just so keen on oppressed and the poor and, you know, um, the, the eternal struggle between the, the powerful and the not powerful or those in power and those that, that don't have power. Um, and you see that all the way through, all, you know, all the works that I've read of him is around that sort of mm. oppression and lack of money, um, which has really you know, been inspired by his actual life. So he returned to England in December 1929. Um, early 1930s, he was writing for Adelphi. Um, he was a private tutor. Now, Adelphi is just a, a publication. Yeah. Um, so he's writing publication. for the money. And he was, you know, doing domestic work at lodges. He was a bookshop assistant, a wide variety of different jobs and things and involvements um, across, his, across his time. 1931, uh, continued to write various articles. Um, but his first version, which he tried to get published of Down and Out, was rejected. Okay. Um, and it's really hard to get published, isn't it? Oh, even particularly now. Yeah. I think it's a. Like, you hear this all the time. Like, oh, I struggled to get my book out there and then it was a massive hit. It probably comes back to the fact that they must get so many different manuscripts and it's pretty difficult to tell what's going to work. <laughs> so what's you good, can kind of not. understand the plight of the publisher. Seems like crazy in hindsight that he couldn't get published, or I guess it's like art too. A lot of the artists don't aren't able to sell their paintings, and no one thinks they're any good until it gets critical Post-humous. mass. Yeah, yeah. The dying does great things for your career if you're an artistic person. Yeah. Whether you're a song, if you die at the peak of your powers, that is, it's just so good for your career. Except you're dead. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Shit, I got a good career. Yeah. Like, <laughs> to be somebody to look at it. That you get immortalized and remembered as that person at the top. It's funny that I was so happy when I made it past the age of 27. Because that's like the, you know. The famous death the, age. The famous death age, you know. Um, the ones that are springing to mind at the moment are um, lead singer of Nirvana. I'm Kurt going to be Cobain. Kurt Cobain, um, Michael Hutchinson in excess. Yeah. Uh, well, you've had similar careers to them. So, 
but I can't see. <laughs> can barely play guitar. <laughs> um, so uh, he also, 1931, deliberately got arrested so he could experience what it was like to be in prison over Christmas. Jeez, gonzo journalism going on here. Yeah, he, he loves it. He, he, he's obs- he almost, like, he definitely has an obsession with the experience, but also particularly this sort of power struggle. Mm, power, and yeah. Um, 1932, private school teacher for a whole, you know, at a school which had 16 students. Um, and eventually we come to 19, sort of 32, 33, and he did manage to get down and out um, published, but... Because of because it told experiences of um, um, him tramping, if you will, or tramping as they refer to it, in London, because um, he had a wide variety of different things. He went and lived in the slums for a period of time and um, just tried lots of different jobs, medial type things. Um, he didn't want to embarrass his family name, so he proposed four names to the publisher. Um, one of them being a name he used while he was in his tramping days. It was like JB something, just a really sort of mm-hmm. um, cockney sort of name, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, and one of the other ones being George Orwell. And it was just a nice sounding English rounded name. So That's cool. they got the tick. Uh, 1934 Burmese days and other SA reflections on his policing days. You know, again, inspired by his... His history, 1936, he was commissioned to visit areas of mass unemployment and economic depression, um, Lancashire, Yorkshire, uh, and this inspired Road to Wignam Pier, which I've heard is also a really good good read, um, which powerfully describes the events um, and includes one of his arguments for socialism. Uh, 1936, uh, he went to Spain. Um, this is the fight in, in Catalonia. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Spanish Civil War was around then. Um, the Republicans versus the fascists, what became the fascists, I guess, and General Franco, who's a pretty historic figure in uh, Spanish history. Uh, and this kind of, uh, I suppose, coincided with other fascist leaders coming up in different countries, whether it's Mussolini or Hitler, and um, there was a big, basically, civil war, and uh, Franco got the chocolates. But it's interesting how pervasive that that is. Like, I guess it's the same with, um, but I guess Nazi Germany had a, was way bigger and way more. Um, I guess influential because it, you know, almost took over the world. But um, you know, that's really part of a strong part of Germany's history and culture in terms of reflecting on all that. Um, and recently, you know, still comes up in a, the head of Volkswagen used the other day a certain turn of phrase in German that was linked to what Hitler would say about you know working uh, and got absolutely poleaxed for it, understandably, um, whether it was intentional or not. And obviously Volkswagen itself has a massive link to the Nazi party. Um, 
Not to so, mention a whole swathe of other issues. <laughs> Environmental and the like. Um, Which have seemed to have gone away. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm looking well, under a rock. No one, but, nothing shocks you anymore, right? Yeah. But Those then you reflect on this at time and you go, well, we've got it good. You know, if we're worried about diesel emissions from a car, we'll be right. But it still doesn't forgive what yeah. they were doing. However, it's absolute fraud. And do you know what I mean? Though. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's probably the slippery slope, right? Like once you normalise certain things, yeah. Um, but in even recently, <laughs> the Spanish prime minister is. Um, Stirring up massive controversy because he wants to dig up Franco's grave and move him, and is kind of a well subtle apologist. I'd probably describe it as, or you know, stirring up that nationalist sentiment, which seems to be coming back these days. It's a bit more veiled, I would probably say, <laughs> at least at the moment, but it's certainly there. Veiled in the sense that it's. Like one nation in Australia and, you know. The tribalism. There's a party in France, the name escapes me, that, and in Greece it's full on. Um, and it's protectionism and fascism and, it was, you know, people feeling disadvantaged and that was a lot of what was happening at the time after World War One. Um in so, Europe. So a way to make the voice heard. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting that he chose to just go down there. He's obviously, you know, he's a real activist, isn't he? Yeah. He well he's when he when he was in, in And he's Spain, not very well. Right. Yeah. Oh he's like you wouldn't say he, he's a, in tip top health. He's he's constantly like through his entire life we haven't mentioned all of them, but he's just like had Bouts of all these, you know, lots of bronchitis, lots of infections, lots of visits to the hospital, a few close to death experiences. I don't know what he was, whether he was just had a, you know, unlucky in terms of the uh, the immune system lottery or whether he, whether he was punishing his body or, you know, probably based on some of the ways and ways in which he was living, he probably wasn't doing the best for his body in terms of what he was eating and everything else. Um, so when he was in Spain, he did have a run in with some poison or something. And he got a poisoned hand, um, which he ended up in hospital with. Um, but Spain was a real eye opener for him, um, in terms of propaganda, censorship, misinformation, the political agendas. I think there's four different factions or sorry, four different parties, you know, there was sort of the fascism versus the sort of socialism, but there was sort of broken up into four different groups from memory. Um, and it was just interesting how it would be totally and utterly the information of that party. And that is the only way, the right way, depending on who you're listening to. A lot of parallels can be drawn to social media these days, what you're interested in. And the sort of kind of silence that you come into. The Not, algorithm. The algorithm. <coughs> Got to do Sapiens soon. <laughs> and Homo Deus. That, that's almost a double header. You go back to back. We'll do that. Yeah. Nine, 1937, sniper bullet in the throat. Um, so As you again, do. Again, Just bang. Again, he's back in hospital. Um, I mean, that would kill most people. 
Oh, I don't, Snipe I don't know. a bullet in the throat. <laughs> just, just you just kind of breezed over that. Like See, I'd imagine it would yeah, have to. You know, uh, yeah, you wrote a book and copped a sniper bullet to the face. Uh, next, it was uh, 1984. Well, see, see all this adversity in his life. He <laughs> clearly just, just yeah. brushes it off. Yeah. Water off a duck's water off a duck's back. It was tipped with dengue fever, the yeah. bullet. So, um, I don't know. I don't know where it uh, impacted him in the throat. However, he did need to stay in hospital for a longer period of time. Really? Uh, and <laughs> after a bullet to the throat, and, shocking. And uh, they eventually decided to flee Spain um, because it was becoming too fierce and too mm. too scary there and they were part of the communist party mm-hmm. or communist focus party and um, there was a lot of the extremities of both what part, both parties were doing was building and building um, yeah that's cool like um, what's well, not cool I mean it's interesting that um, that's think what you say about both sides and that's kind of throughout this book too and something I noticed when I'm listening to like there's another good podcast called The Dollop where they go through the American history of different things and a lot of them are about like groups that get together to like rebel against something and then they just sort of slowly turn into the thing that they can't afford against in the first place I'm like bang this is this book 100% that's animal Um, but it's ridiculous how often it happens in different situations. Like, is there any that you can? Uh, I'm trying to think now. Um, think of, think of one for later on when yeah, we talk about it. They're certainly they're more like cults, right? Or um, altruistic socialist sort of communities or communes, or um, you know, there's a story on Netflix. One of them's the Rajasthanis or what have you. Though you could probably argue that they were already, always a bit of a con but yeah the paranoia that comes in and the control and the hierarchy and sometimes um yeah i'll uh if i can't think of any specifics i'll put them in the show notes um when we release this because whilst whilst what we talk about in animal farm sounds far-fetched the point is it's not that far-fetched um there is like it might be taken slightly to the extreme, sure. To make the point. To make the point, yeah. And that's the parallels he's trying to draw, and that's his that's that's his method of satire and critiquing society. Um, so I didn't mention that he married Eileen. I think it was 1936 uh, they got married, um, but ironically, after they moved back to England, uh, Eileen started working for the Ministry of Information. Um, this is at the commencement of World War Two. Wow. Which bookended his life, essentially, didn't it? I mean... Oh, yeah. Well, pretty... 1950, got five years after that he died. So. Spoiler. Yeah. It really took the wind <laughs> out of your sails. So. Although you did mention it at the start, so... Um, but no he surprises. Was, he didn't participate, but... Well, yeah, that's the thing. So he, due to poor health, he was not able to... To participate, he, he sounds like to. the kind of guy who would have gotten. But he wanted it. to. He yeah. wanted to. Like he was, he was applying and trying to get involved and, and wanted mm. to be. He just wants to get amongst this experience it. and <laughs> get amongst it and try <sighs> and try all these different things. And and he was just continually rejected because yeah. of his shitty health. Like again, bronchitis is one that kept popping up. It's interesting that they still reject 
people even at that time where they just needed so many Four. people around. But, yeah, pretty much. But I guess it's a burden if they can't get around mm. and there's probably more that you could do at home if you... That's it. Contribute, you contribute more to the war effort from home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1944, so as the war was coming closely to the uh, to the end, uh, Animal Farm was ready for rejection. Um, but because the publisher perceived it as being a, um, um, a critique and telling of the Soviet regime, they didn't want to have a part in it. But eventually in 1945 it was published. So um, 1945 his wife, Eileen, first wife died in hospital. Um, and then uh, 19... 45, 46, he was looking for a, um, a younger a younger spouse, which he didn't have too much luck with, but I think he had multiple attempts at trying to find someone to fill the, fill the void. Uh, he had lots of sickness, 1946, mostly bronchitis, then also tuber- tuberculosis, um, TB, uh, was something he contracted. Uh, 1984 was finished in 1949. And then 1950, he died. Wow. So um, we haven't gone into all the numbers of books and essays and journals and pub- various publications he's had you across his life, gist. but it's, it's insane. Yeah. He was just constantly... Very life, like... Very much constantly writing. Yeah. Which is yeah. interesting. I heard the other day, right, uh, Peter Drucker, right, at the age of... 60 and he, he'd written like 50 books or you know just wow. some absurd number of books right Econ- he, he's an economist isn't he is that right or? oh a management right management yeah okay um yeah that's right yeah he, he he's written the effective executive which is one of our future books but he he geez the legs on this beanbag <laughs> struggling <laughs> for those not watching this, we this are in a you need to get in the Japanese lotus. style position and I'm not used to it I've just stretched out <laughs> I'm going to do the same too. Um, uh, yeah so at the age of like 60 or something he'd only written like 20 or 30% of the books that he was going to write in his life and then as just 60 just, just pumped him out just yeah. launched up until he Damn. You know, died in, say, his 90s or wow. late 80s or something of that nature. So it's quite profound, just these exactly. sort of prolific writers yeah. and how much can be achieved. I have heard of that book, but I don't know anything about Peter. Or, that sounds really interesting, so I'll check it out. It is such a good book. Um, I'm happy to reread it too. Oh, well, let's do it. <laughs> so what can you tell me? So Now that we've spoken book the extensive life well, yeah, George Orwell. We're probably going to be shorter on the talking points than the bio but that's cool it was an interesting it's a short book it is a short book um and essentially it's about a group of animals that live on a farm um that take over the farm from the um original human owner just as context and it's yeah about well heaps of stuff but we can talk, we've got a few talking points that we've pulled out of it. But I'm sure English literature experts are going to be, you know, you'll be able to find heaps of stuff on this on the internet. Um, but it's a, yeah, this is kind of our perspective and 
it's kind of here to encourage you to check it out, I guess. Yeah. So, well, so if the, we like it, I think there's, I don't know if there's a, a uh, definitive answer on what the book represents or what it's about, but it's, it's spoken to me about the sort of degeneration of the Soviet Union and, and, you know, the overthrow into the sort of Stalinism and you Stalin got, era. You got to think that the Spain stuff has got to be in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, well, I given imagine, his I personal experience and how much he draws from that, uh, but but it's also like we'll that was the time. Know. That was also the time of you know the the Stalin era too. And a lot of his books have these sort of historical backings, you know. Mm. And it's almost like a closure to his perspective and his take on those particular areas. So I imagine this this piece is like he's coming together of a lot of different pieces, and and put it in the form that's very metaphorically mm. easy to understand. Yeah. So who rules? So what's the situation on the farm? Basically there's a farmer. Yes. Who has a farm with different types of animals. Who can talk to each other. Who can talk to each other. The animals decide that they don't want to be oppressed by the farmer any longer. So they, and this is massive spoilers, but. If you haven't but, read it by now. You've missed out. But I don't think it ruins it no, if you want to read it. No, it's definitely worth worthwhile. And um, and they overthrow the farmer. Yes. And then we just sort of see this um, degeneration, if you will, play out of There's two original intent. prominent initial leaders um, that um, the story kind of goes from there and there's – Napoleon and Snowball. Power and and what happens over the over time, I think, is a key thing that I kind of pulled out of it. Um, yeah, it's there's a lot there. So let's go through some of the um, stuff, a few of the things we pulled out. Um, you're up first, bud. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. That handball. Um, what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> so the the um, the constant battle is something I took out, and this is I think I think we need to describe a little bit more. Is so basically when the animals took over the farm, they were led by the pigs because the pigs were the most intelligent, and they were deemed to be the the sort of upper class the upper class even though intelligentsia intelligentsia even though as we'll hear a little bit shortly that uh, all animals are equal um, but some pigs, are more equal than others yeah, but the pigs are able to take the mantle in this case and, and be the leaders so um, there was when when this happened uh, they took over and there was a mission to then build a mill to sort of provide sustenance and food and everything for the community of the farm. Um, and there's just constant, there's a constant battle to try and finish the mill and the mill is the most important thing in the world. And eventually the mill does get completed. Uh, but then we find that they shortly after moved on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's a common goal that they're all pushing towards yeah. in the future. This will give us prosperity. This will take us to the, you know, we can live this idyllic life once this mill's done. But we've got to work hard until then. Yeah, I think it was 
the, the quote is, and thereafter you declared so much labour would be saved that the animals would only need to work three days a week. Yeah. Did the animals ever work Sounds less like than that. seven days a week? I don't think so. No. <laughs> um, so he's, N- Napoleon... Sounds a lot like us. <laughs> <laughs> so Napoleon, Napoleon ends up um, basically having an uprising against the other leader, Snowball and uh, taking the, all the power for himself and Snowball becomes basically mm. this exiled away um, and becomes sort of this um, vision of the devil throughout the throughout the book, which is quite interesting. It's the omnipresent threat to explain everything. Yeah, so he's always this, he's, yeah. this, this sort of um, mythical. mythical creature that's that's just Coming escaped over the, the other side of the or, fence. Yeah, the threat, the the people across the border or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but that is used to sort of drive you. to yeah. drive the fear and you know the fear mongering into the society, mm. if you will. Um, so it's kind of touched on it, but the biggest thing for me was that yeah the almost manifesto of what we're about and the rules that were written on the side of the barn and um, the philosophy of the society is kind of seen as written on stone tablets almost, you know. That's the way it's kind of communicated. It's like this is the rules of our society and this is how we're going to get prosperity in that. But as time goes on, those constantly creep and change and people can't remember what it was at the start but they still feel like these are the rules we've always had I guess and that is interesting and leads into our previous book The Black Swan around how you view the past and and that sort of thing um, and so I found that really interesting and um, how much of the narrative a narrative from the state or <clears throat> someone in a position of power can be massaged as time goes along. Mm. And but, how forgetful the masses or the crowd yeah. is. Yeah, and, you know, you see it in countries, religions, um, organisations, companies, sporting groups, you know, whatever. Like Classic example was the one of the core values of... Um, Google, um, we will do no evil. <laughs> don't <laughs> be evil. Don't be evil. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> Shouldn't say that. <laughs> yeah, they might not link us in their results. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's constantly changing. That happens in, that's just humans. Yeah. But we always feel like it's the same as it has been. But it's interesting because, so what actually happens in the book is there's seven commandments at the start. Mm. Isn't there? And that's set down at this initial battle to overthrow the human. Yeah, when you know, to, to take, old major was alive or what have you. Yeah, yeah. And 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 these seven commandments, they sound like you know um, seven fairly virtuous commandments for all the animals within the society. But then we see as the overthrow happens and as the book progresses, they sort of evolve and things are slightly tweaked and changed depending on the events that happen and take place. Um, so much so that um, 
you've gone from seven commandments um, at the start, which eventually, and one of them being all animals are equal. That was the seventh of the seven um, commandments. And by the end of the book, there's one final reflection or one final look at the, the mural of, you know, where the seven commandments used to be or where they thought they used to be. And all it says now is all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. <laughs> the pigs. Um, and so this, this is sort of coupled with um, um, what happens at the end of the book where the pigs, you know, they, they become upstanding and they start walking around on two legs. One of the commandments related to um, animals, you know, people, Animals on four legs are, are to be trusted and, you know, are good, hmm. whereas anything on two is not. Um, um, so what do you reckon about – it's kind of human nature. The, the zeitgeist changes all the time. In, but it, it's interesting. It's really tough to weave those things back through. I guess. I guess when there's like, I think they people do it by having kind of vague statements that can move a little, or yeah, you know. not being definitive. Yeah, political language. Yeah, I think I think that's certainly yeah the case. But certainly that threat that you talked about is um is a pretty interesting one. The constant threat, the omnipresent threat. So it pulls everyone together, you know, in a time of crisis. Yeah, yeah. What it, else you got for me? Uh, well, I was going to say that on that sort of, I think what you're getting to is that sort of forgetfulness of the crowd. Mm. Right? Yeah, that's a much and, better way to put it. I like that. And and not just forgetfulness but the blindness of the crowd. So this is like the collective bias of the crowd mm. being not being able to see what's going on behind them um, and and how quickly we forget things. And when you've got a, ta- you know, you're living your daily life, you kind of don't notice it. Yeah. And, and the thing is, yeah, you're totally focused in on, you know, what's happening today, what's happening tomorrow or what was happening yesterday. And so I us look a little bit further each way depending on our demeanour, but we're not, there's not many of us that are looking 5, 10, 20 years ahead and not many of us looking 5, 10, 20 years ahead, behind and there's certainly, or more, and there's certainly not many that are doing both. Yeah. <laughs> and we quickly forget, um, which is, you know, where you see sort of um, economic crisis happen and conservative regulation results and then all of a sudden it's loosened, 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 mm. loosened or hmm. things are forgotten and and it all happens over again. Yeah. It's just that sort of forgetful nature of society at large because because it is driven by the society at large. And so if people aren't focused on that which impacted it previously because it's been too long between it um, because – it's only there's a few, select few of experts that actually know what's what's happening and what's been going on. It's difficult to remember as the crowd. That's very very <laughs> abstract. <laughs> um, I think something I picked up in the book as well was, and I 
I kind of got this from another book I read, but um, the threat of violence and pervasive violence or, yeah, maybe pervasive isn't the right word, but sort of that background that in your life you're kind of programmed to be always looking for what's going to hurt you and that even the modern world now is really governed by that in many ways. Um, So the example um, was you go to a nightclub, right? They put bouncers on the doors because they're threatening. They're big people that you know can hurt you. So it's going to kind of stop you doing bad things. The police carry guns around and are trained and it's the fact that they could hurt you that means that you, you, you're constantly triggering that in your brain and it stops you doing certain things. Um, the army, like you go to Europe, they walk around the train stations with um, machine guns, you know. It's totally foreign to what's here. Or even at work, someone who's just bigger than you. You probably are physically, you know, we've had that be in the construction industry, that that thought of, hey, this person could kill me if they wanted to. That sort of feeling actually governs a lot of decision making. It's um, an innate feeling. Yeah, and that's throughout this book too. You know, the threat of violence, whether it's from an external party that's used to, say, snowball. Who so the fact he might be coming back is used as a motivator, um, and that's a fear of violence or death. But it's also from the pigs who are in power that they can hurt you or what have you as well. Yeah, yeah well, they sort of moved on from the human <laughs> to being the, uh, as being the um, the evil, mm. including the sort of post, post battles that, yeah. that could have been had, you know, the threat of the human coming back to try and take the farm and then it evolved into Snowball. Oh, Snowball. Such a nice name. It is such a nice name. Um, the other, th- the book I read that in, or I kind of, connected the dots was called debt the first 5,000 years and it's about the different I think it's a a real uh, lefty favorite but I found it really interesting um, and not yeah uh, not to Don't say that yourself a crime, <laughs> uh, nothing about politics keep it out of it uh, and I yeah but basically the book's about how debt came about and the nature of money and one of the main he kind of mentions that in the book and I was like wow that's really interesting and also kind of the way that debt traps you in or the light at the end that basically let's take modern society at the moment in Australia you're what you're supposed to do is get a house right but you have to borrow eight to ten plus times your wage to do that. So you're actually just imprisoning yourself to the state because then you need to work and that work is good for the economy and good for the community but you pay taxes and some might say that they get unevenly distributed the benefits from those to certain portions of the population. Um, But the point is that by doing that societal norm and in many other ways throughout history there's been way harsher versions of this, you almost get prisoned by debt into doing living a particular way. 
that kind of benefits maybe the people in power, right? Mm. And I think that's definitely in this book as well where you're working for the windmill so one day you can work three days a week or what have you and have this great life. Maybe one day you pay your house off and you retire or you live on the beach or you can buy all those things that are on the television and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's interesting because... It's their link together, those themes, I think. It's quite interesting because... Um, excusing some of the materiality and if you've got a very expensive taste in things, like let's exclude that for a sec. And just some of the experience, oh, I really want to travel the world or uh, I really want to go and do this but I haven't got time or whatever. There's really nothing. Unless, you know, if, if you're in, in, in sort of a, a younger situation, um, even in the older situation, unless you've got dependence, there is not much stopping you from going and flexing that. There's not, but think about if you were living in, say, our grandparents, right? Mm. The wars have just finished. There's all these threats. There's snowball on the outside. Yeah. You're going to hunker down and, and you're going to get that house and you're going to make sure you've got a home for your family. And Whereas we kind of feel like, well, we'll be right. You know, like we can always sort it out. There'll be a job when I come back. There'll be, no one's There's coming over the mountains. You know, you, you and I are lucky enough to have good education at university. So theoretically, you know, as long as the robots don't take over, there's a snowball. Um, we'll be right. So we don't feel that sense of urgency or we're higher on the hierarchy of needs probably mm. than they felt like they were. And that external threat, I think, can be like what happens in this book. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's quite um, interesting. changes your mindset. I was going to say it's quite interesting because, and you see now is the sort of unhappiness that creeps in even at that sort of higher end of the, the need scale, if you will. Damn right. Because there's always just this constant lack of satisfaction. Yep. Um, I was talking to you earlier about, for example, um, say last year we travelled to France right, and we spent a little bit of time roaming around Paris as you do and and one of the days we decided we're going to go see the Notre Dame. So we went, we made our walk there. We, we were staying probably a half an hour walk and we like walking around the city anyway. And you eventually find your way at Notre Dame. Okay, cool. Jump in the line. Jump in the line to go into the Notre Dame. Then impatiently waiting there, looking at what's going on, not really not really taking it in as, as well as you probably should be. Get in there. But probably more just observing what's happening. And, and you just want to get in there. You're impatient. <laughs> and then eventually you find your way inside Notre Dame and all you want to do is walk around and see mm. what it's all about and then eventually you make your way through you go okay that was great that was exciting and then you finish and you go okay what are we doing next okay now we're going to move on to the bookstore we're going to move on to Shakespeare's bookstore which is just down across the across the river down the road and we go there wait in line to get in have a walk around and come back out like okay what's next what's next what are we doing next you go to a museum you do the same thing yeah. you constantly uh, this sort of lack of satisfaction and I like to think of myself as being somewhat observant not being completely at 
the whim of that that urge or that desire to you know to keep moving forward but it's just profound because reflecting back on that that's totally not the case <laughs> yeah but cut yourself some slack i think people want to be busy yeah you know there's satisfaction in being busy that's why people ride their bikes 20 grand bikes around they're just they're not there's nothing generated by that besides from you getting on the bike oh you get a good coffee at the end working and working your butt off and then you know there's no it's about being that ant in the colony you know that's kind of satisfying to us somewhat but yeah you've got to kind of enjoy it along the way it's kind of what you're saying though isn't it it's quite interesting because the guy on the bike all he wants to do whilst he's on the bike is get off the bike because of the pain his legs are in (laughs) and then so eventually they find their way to get Mm. to the coffee yeah have the coffee and then move on. <laughs> yeah, next. <laughs> next. <laughs> ironically, I do have to go to work. That very is very ironic. So I think we've got one more point yeah. to go through. Uh, what do you at got? I, at least I've got here. Probably should share notebooks. It's a discussion for after this podcast. Um, state media. So... That was and, this, and this sort of yeah. brings together brings together everything we've sort yeah. of been speaking about. So, you know, in Australia, we've got the ABC, which is an independent, theoretically independent um, broadcasting company. So it's probably not as clear from a government point of view that we don't feel that as much. But, you know, in other countries. But, but also the ABC still has to justify itself economically. Yeah. So they get their money from the government. So, yeah. But, you know, there's there's that sort of bias from the message. Who's the message coming from? And it's really these days, that's all throughout this book, and these days it's really more around, you know, where you get your news from, um, from corporations that have different agendas or what have you. Is it actually news? Is it just wrapped up in news? A really non-important example is like um, I follow the footy and the Richmond Football Club have a podcast and news and an app and you can look at it and you check it out and you're like, things are great, you know. Oh, wow, this guy's training the house down. We're in for a great year, you know. Nothing's wrong, nothing to see here. But if you check more sources that are more independent of the Richmond that's not necessarily the case, right? So not like the bloody pies, mate. Where do they, oh, they're perfect. So where does the inf, where does your information come from? And factoring that into what you do is something I've pull, come out of this book for me. Um, Almost the most important thing to come out of the book. What? Who's writing this? And what do they think? What are they? Because everyone's biased in some way, right? And how am I biased when I'm reading this? Yeah. Oh God, multi-layered. Yeah. It's. Uh, I. I. I agree. I think that's my biggest takeaway. Was what's the source? Mm. Where's the source? Um, and whilst you sort of recognise, you know, particularly sort of maybe affiliations and alignments of various news and publication outlets, you know, a lot of them obvious, some a little bit less well, obvious. There's a lot of the longer the supply chain goes on, or the ownership structure goes on, the harder it is to filter out where what's actually happening here i reckon uh, yeah and and who which owns way what, it's swinging. what yeah so um and then there's like a bigger scale so international news say 
where someone who news even an independent company in China is going to have a very different view from an independent company in Australia because they're from a different place with different government that it's all kind of and a different culture. It's all everyone's got a perspective, so it's cool. It's interesting to understand that perspective. Yeah. And it's it's it, we're in an interesting space now because we've got the likes of um, Twitter. Yeah. For example, that's making headlines recently because of the discussion, because of the, the public discussion that's taking place on Twitter and the intervention that they have. Mm-hmm. And it's seen as being, you know, by some as being an interruption of the public discourse because particular people are getting banned off Twitter for saying particular things. Mm. And is that intervention... Or should you let far. it run wild? Or do you let it run wild? And, Who's the, and this is the who challenge. decides, yeah. 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 No, that's interesting. And it's sort of that base morality that comes into it. And so I'm very interested to see where that, that takes place because if you're following a particular hashtag, you're only going to see stuff from that hashtag. Their algorithms, and same goes for the Facebooks and the yeah, Instagrams start and all. feeding you that stuff. You're going to get fed the stuff that you enjoy reading. That's a... Positive, well, positive feedback, feedback loop, it but is. not that positive. <laughs> yeah. Positive to you, but not necessarily positive overall. Yeah. <laughs> so. That was good. It's a good book. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, and a short read too. Really yeah, short read. you could knock it over pretty quickly even as a slow reader. A lazy Saturday afternoon after your bike ride. <laughs> Looking forward to the next one. Thanks. Awesome.